Hi, welcome to Arguably. I'm Ross Anderson, and today we're talking about politics. I'm not going to do a long intro, because I feel the conversation speaks for itself in many ways. It's a conversation about the future of the left, what it is to be a progressive, the forces harming contemporary politics, and which ideas are worth considering, and which are not. My guest today, Cenk Uger, is a great example of how simple boxes stop us from considering more important ideas. Cenk is a progressive, and often reduced online to viral clips from his show The Young Turks. But he's also a deeply insightful thinker, who rightly predicted Trump winning the election, and has a strong instinct for what's important. I don't agree with Cenk on everything. I am for legislative compromise, have a far more aggressive foreign policy view, support originalist jurisprudence, worry about populism, so forth. But Cenk has a refreshingly different view from almost all in the mainstream press, and a genuine concern for making politics work for working people, which is rare. Sure, there are lots of Ivy League-educated columnists who will scold you for being insufficiently compliant with their elite views of what it means to support the powerless, but Cenk has his eye on the ball, on the issues that actually matter for working folk. And I feel a conversation like this is a reminder that political discussion is rarely focused on the important topics, and that Twitter leftists don't own what it is to be a progressive. If you enjoyed this conversation, please review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe at arguablypod.com. But in the meantime, enjoy. Cenk Uger, welcome to Arguably. Thank you. Appreciate you, Ross. I describe myself as a liberal because I believe that the state should interfere where the free market doesn't serve freedoms well, and that the state's primary function is to allow people to live in the way they want to, in the way that will make them happiest and that they feel is meaningful, and protect them when that steps out of bounds. Some people think that I'm going to say some libertarian platitudes here, but I think, for instance, the public health care system is a part of that, so that working class people aren't using lots of their resources for basic health and can live in a meaningful way. But this also means that I think that if Pfizer and their CEOs earn millions upon billions of dollars for a vaccine, fantastic. I'm happy. I think that's a great social function. That's not rent-seeking. That's a very useful service. And if they earn billions of dollars for doing so, I can't really complain as the net result is something that's very positive. So I'm curious, you describe yourself as a progressive. So where are disagreements there? Should I embrace the progressive label? What do you think it means to be a progressive? So you pretty much agree with us, I think, almost completely. We'll suss it out and see what happens. But there's nothing wrong with the way you're thinking. But I'll just add some nuance to that because it's just a short statement that you made. So first off, does the government have a role? Of course! Thinking that the government doesn't have a role is not really a legitimate point of view. I mean, it's anarchist. It's silly. It's what I used to think in seventh grade when I read Ayn Rand. But you need cops, you need military, you need things that keep you alive and protect you, the bare minimum from the government, uh, including things like Social Security that keep you alive later in life. But one of the things that keeps you alive is healthcare. It's the principal thing that keeps you uh, alive. Uh, you might or might never need cops in your life, but you're definitely going to need healthcare. And so what progressives have offered is very simple it is what is universally agreed upon in all developed countries they all have it it's universal health care the reason is like fire insurance some forms of insurance have to be public rather than private in fire insurance we used to have private insurance in america and it turned into a disaster because if your house was insured but your neighbor bob didn't pay enough for his premium 
they wouldn't put out the fire. This is literal. This actually happened in American history. And guess what? It turns out fires spread. And so do viruses. And so do other forms of disease. And we realized that during COVID, and we covered everybody's COVID shots, which then shows you definitively, oh, right, we should be covering everyone's health insurance. And remember, it's just insurance. It's not all of healthcare. Mainstream media, in my opinion, lies through omission. They make it seem like it's the entire healthcare system. They make it seem like the doctors are now going to be communists or something. No, it's just the frickin' insurance. Just because you have car insurance doesn't mean that the person who gives you car insurance is making your car. No, that's right. a different company. Doesn't right? mean you should make everyone drives ladders. Exactly. And so when it comes to private healthcare options like drug companies, we absolutely need them. Does that mean that we need to allow them to rob us blind? No. Uh, the answer is almost always balance. So you need the Pfizer's of the world to create amazing medicines, which they do. And if you got rid of them, that would be a dramatic mistake. The government is not going to be able to single-handedly get you all those drugs. Now, on the other hand, does the government help those companies a tremendous amount, both legitimately and illegitimately? Yes. So the legitimate part is we help them to do their research. The United States government is part and parcel of that research. So that's great. It's private and public working together. Now, the problem there is why do they keep all the profits? I'm a capitalist. I believe in the capitalist system. But in the capitalist system, when you invest into anything, including a company like Pfizer, and yes, helping them with their research is definitely investing into them, you get a part of the proceeds. That's just capitalism 101. There isn't a single capitalist that would disagree with that statement. So how come we don't get any of the proceeds? The taxpayers that help them develop those drugs should get a percentage of their equity. I don't think that's crazy. I think that's perfectly normal. That's not nationalizing them. That's letting them do what they want. But we invested into them and we should get some of the profits. So that's point one. Point two is we don't need to have them give them monopolies for 12 years. That's unheard of. It used to be five years, and there's some logic to five years because you want them to be able to make good money off the drugs that they develop. But 12 years is is just government capture. And it's exactly what Adam Smith warned against. It's monopoly power. And speaking of monopoly power, the idea that we cannot negotiate our own drug prices is the most mental thing I have ever heard. No other government, even the most corrupt governments in the world don't do that. And it is the least capitalist thing you could do. It's borderline communist, except Pfizer's running the government instead of Stalin. When you're talking about the public getting some of profits of a company like Pfizer, are you talking about that if American taxpayers give financing to a company like Pfizer through a system like Operation Warp Speed to really ramp up production where we help them financially with the research side and essentially by using public funds to de-risk R&D, that on the flip side of that, are you saying that we should get part ownership in a company like Pfizer? Or are you saying that the drugs that are produced through research that we help sponsor should become generic drugs so that nobody owns a patent on the mRNA vaccines and that these are publicly accessible and a company like Cost Plus Drugs, which didn't develop it at all, could sell it as a generic drug? So Ross, that involves a lot of nuance. And if I was president, I'd pull a lot of people into that room and ask them all of their different ideas on how to best thread that needle. But if you ask me to give you an answer right now without weighing all the percentages and et cetera, I would say the simplest answer is, no, we get a portion of their profits. Because if you make the drugs immediately available as generic, 
then the Pfizer's of the world are probably going to pull out of that research. They're going to say, we're not going to make enough money. We're going to have no competitive advantage. So we're out as partners, right? But you still want them as partners, but there's no reason why we shouldn't have equity in those companies. See, I'll give you another example. We bailed out all the banks in 2008 and we spent billions if not trillions when you count on the Federal Reserve and their actions on it. In a normal capitalist system, if any entity puts billions or trillions into your company, they own probably all of the equity. We could have taken all the equity and I think we could have nationalized the banks. That doesn't mean you turn them into communist banks. What it means is you rescue them and not their executives, not their shareholders, but the people who have money in those banks. And then you later privatize them again with better guardrails. But short of that, at a bare minimum, like the drug companies, if we're investing into those banks, we should have equity in those banks. So it's like an angel investor. You come into a business that's failing. If you give a percentage of your money, you give them X hundreds of thousands. You expect you get X hundreds of thousands back plus a return. And we should view the state's intervention into private companies, whether this assisting R&D or a bailout, in the same function. And that would probably create a healthier market, right? Yeah. And angel investors are at the bottom rung. Then you have venture capital, growth equity, and then private equity. And so the government is at a minimum at the private equity level, the highest level. And those guys take the biggest cut. And that makes sense. The more money you put in, the more you take out. This is basic, basic capitalism. But we, the reason we don't do basic capitalism here in America is because of corporatism. And so I explain this in my book, Justice is Coming. Corporatism is the enemy of capitalism. So once corporations arise, just like Adam Smith predicted, they try to get monopoly power. And the number one way to get monopoly power is to capture the government. And so uh, the Supreme Court in the 1970s legalized bribery in America. That is what has led us to become the most corrupt nation on earth. Because here there are no penalties for bribery. You just bribe politicians and they do exactly what they tell you. They call them campaign contributions. That's why they're legalized bribes. But they are definitely bribes. And the politicians definitely do as they are told. That's why we have been saying things like we give the banks trillions and get nothing in return. We're not allowed to negotiate our own drug prices. We live under complete corporate rule and mainstream media covers it up so that no one is aware and so when I mean, people talk about being woke all the time, what we really need to wake up from is corporate rule. I compare often my home country, the United Kingdom, with the US in many ways. And what's interesting is that the Democratic Party, the left-wing party in the United States American political system, has been in power far more often than the British Labour Party. This is even if you include the Blairite government, which only really came into power because it was so similar to John Major's government. And yet, despite this, despite the relatively lack of success of the Labour Party in the UK, British politics are far more left-leaning. The policies in the 1930s and 40s, which were percolating up in the United States and in Britain, came into place in the post-war era in Britain, with the Beveridge Report and the founding of the NHS, with the public sector, with a broader social safety net. And this really hasn't taken root in the US. I'm wondering, why do you think that is? Why is it that despite the left-wing party in the US has been in power for so much longer and far more often, that America remains a far more right-wing country? Yeah, I explain this in Justice is Coming, too. Uh, so the Republican Party in America is 
no longer the party of Lincoln. They call it the party of Lincoln, but that's a joke. The two sides switched during the Southern strategy. Nixon launched the Southern strategy, which was a strategy to gain racist voters in the South. Everyone knows that, except no one ever says it. And so they actively decided to become the more racist party. Now, why do I give you that background? Because the Democratic Party is also no longer what it used to be. It used to be the party of FDR, and now it is a party of corporate rule. And so, and people call it like they said Joe Biden was going to be FDR 2.0. That's a hilarious, that's a joke. Like right. the Republicans being the party of Lincoln is a joke. Democrats being the party of FDR is a joke. And so in the 1970s, when the Supreme Court legalized bribery, um, the Democratic Party realized, oh, wait, we can take bribes too. And I explained <laughs> in great detail with absolute overwhelming evidence, quotes from the Times, stats, etc., that a guy named Tony Coelho took over the Democratic Party. He was the head of the DCCC that he raised money for Democrats in the House. And he just flat out said, yeah, we're selling out the business interests. And my job is to sell out to them even more than the Republicans. And they executed that job brilliantly. So that's why the Democrats are always in power and always do nothing. And then in the beginning, like here, Biden's a perfect example. So he's coming in and he says, I'm going to do all these things. And he lists this laundry list of fairly progressive priorities, which are wonderful, that American people love. And he uses it to beat Trump, barely. He won the popular vote by a lot, but the Electoral College was still close because he only won by 43,000 votes in three swing states. Otherwise, Trump wins. But he wins. He wins. What did he promise? So he promised... $15 minimum wage, paid family leave, public option, decriminalizing marijuana, student debt relief, uh, voting rights, et cetera, et cetera. Delivered none of them. He gave 10% of student debt relief. He tried for a little bit more, full well knowing the Supreme Court's going to knock it down. He was ecstatic that they knocked it down. He never wanted to do it in the first place. You can tell intent from things like, oh, I'm definitely going to do the public option. <laughs> and then he doesn't even propose it. He says, oh, I'm definitely going to do $15 minimum wage. He gets in office, his first interview, there's the Super Bowl interview right after inauguration, and he says, we're not doing $15 minimum wage. Why? Because he was lying the whole time. He serves as donors. The only true thing he ever said was to the donors when he said, nothing will fundamentally change. But what happens next is critical, Ross, because he promises the moon and the sky, and everybody says he's definitely going to do it. Then he comes in and does almost none of it, and then everyone turns around and says, what an amazing hero. He did a lot. He did an amazing amount. I'm like, then I list all the things he didn't do. And by the way, the things that I just listed are tip of the iceberg. He didn't do at least 85% of his priorities. Then the same exact people in the Democratic Party and mainstream media turn around and say, oh, those things were impossible. Oh, you progressives are never satisfied. We told you those things are impossible. No, no, you didn't. You lied. And you said they were definitely going to get done. And I don't mean every part of it. Of course, some parts of it are very difficult. And Joe Biden, for example, never promised Medicare for all. And so I don't blame him for that. He was very clear. He doesn't like Medicare for all. That's why I voted for Bernie Sanders. I, so I'm not holding him to some unreasonable standard. I'm only holding him to the standard he set when he was running for office. Now, if you say that all those things that you promised and some of which you said were the bare, bare minimum, like voting rights and $15 minimum wage, are impossible. The next time you make me promises, then I know you're a liar. But if you say that in media, <gasps> no, 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 we're all mass pretending, mass pretending that the Democrats are going to do things. And the minute they don't do things, we all mass pretend that it was impossible. So neither one of those things is true. 
Democratic Party is almost completely owned by their corporate donors. They're not even going to try to do a great majority of the things. And are they impossible? No, they're incredibly possible. They're, in fact, downright easy. If I was the president, I can get paid family leave passed in two weeks. So now you say, oh, that's outrageous. The giant, the unbelievably progressive Biden and all of his beloved Democrats couldn't get it passed. Did you know there's Republicans and that they're opposed to? Yeah, I know. Elementary politics, brothers and sisters, paid family leave polls at 84%. If you can't get something passed when it polls at 84%, you suck at your job. And that's just a scientific fact. So did you know that 74% of Republicans want paid family leave? I went on a right-wing podcast a week ago. They pulled their voters live while I was on there. I went into the lion's den and I argued for paid family leave, a very progressive position. You know what percentage of their audience said they agree with me? 75%. And that is after I ripped Trump's face off. And so they already had me at, I don't like this guy. I don't like this guy at all. He just like said super mean things about my beloved hero, Donald Trump. And then I tell him paid family. They're like, yes, I'm in favor of that. And you can't get that passed. No, you can get it passed. You don't want to get it passed because your donors don't want to pay the bill. The whole thing is entire American political landscape is filled to the rim with corruption, propaganda and lies. One of the most popular positions among voters is that politicians shouldn't be able to buy individual stocks. And, I mean, if I was Paul Pelosi, I certainly wouldn't like that to pass. And if I was Nancy Pelosi, I certainly wouldn't like that to get barred. But it's the vast majority of voters think that this is just an outrage, that you can get access to information on companies before anyone else buy shares in those companies. And then the news comes out in two weeks. For some of these seats, it seems fairly obvious that they should be replaceable with candidates who are less crops, who have more principles, who have demonstrated a better course of action. But in a seat like Joe Manchin's, for instance, I'm not really sure what an approach there is in terms of if a more progressive candidate were to challenge him in the Democratic primary, they may beat him in the Democratic primary, but West Virginia voters tend to be more conservative. So what is the is there a certain amount of do you, just, do you disagree with that? you think that these policies are just inherently like family leave? And if you just have a stronger candidate behind these policies that you can win in those areas? I'm not the average bear, as I think you know. So yes, some on the left are unrealistic. And they say, oh, we'll just waltz into West Virginia and win with how we frame issues today. No, that will not happen. Okay. But by the way, before I even get into that, let me just make note of the Stock Act, the insider trading that you mentioned. Another perfect example. Both Republican and Democratic voters want it passed. They don't want the insider trading. Yet magically, it's not passed. Huh, interesting. Yet another issue where 80 to 90% of Americans agree. Now, when you turn on cable news, it seems like we disagree about everything. But wait a minute. It turns out we agree on minimum wage that passes every time it's a ballot measure. We agree on paid family leave. We agree on banning insider trading. We hate corporatism. We hate corruption. And we agree on all of these things, yet none of them get done because it's not Republicans versus Democrats. It's insiders versus outsiders. And so that brings us to West Virginia. So people have this perception of West Virginia as very conservative. That's actually not true. West Virginia is very populist. It's a different frame. Okay. West Virginia and Kentucky both used to be very democratic. Same with Arkansas. And that's why Bill Clinton came from 
Arkansas. Currently, the governor of Kentucky is a Democrat. In fact, the governor of West Virginia was a Democrat and switched while in office to being a Republican. So you're thinking, well, how are the Democrats winning in what appears to be a very red, very pro-Trump state? Are they very pro-Trump because they love corporate power? No, they're very pro-Trump because they're very populist. And Trump is the only one at least pretending to be a populist. Whereas the Democrats keep sending the most elitist people in Washington to West Virginia and go, hey, why don't you vote for these fake robots who wouldn't know a West Virginian if it hit them across the face? They've never been to West Virginia. They're never going to be to West Virginia. They don't care about the coal miners. They don't care about any of you over there. All they care about is their donors and they're all fancy elites. And then you send those robots in. You're going to send in Pete Buttigieg to West Virginia and think you're going to win it. I mean, come on, guys. So give me a populist progressive. Let me go in there and fight for higher wages, better health care things that they care about in their lives. You know what was popular in West Virginia? The one thing that Joe Biden passed that was really good was at the very beginning, the COVID relief plan. Now, everybody knew he was going to pass a COVID relief plan, so it's a low bar, but he did put a lot of money into it. That was a good beginning. If we kept that momentum going, great. But of course, it was just a head fake. He did it for one year and then stopped everything cold. But in that year, the child tax credit, which was part of that bill, was enormously popular, including in places like West Virginia. Now, you give me a populist progressive, and I run on healthcare for everybody, higher wages, child tax credit, paid family leave, and I'll give you a Democratic senator from West Virginia. But the reason the Democrats won't do that is because their donors won't let them. So they're going to run those robots and they're going to get annihilated, not because West Virginia is conservative, but because West Virginia is populist. I think you're completely correct that the Republicans and a large part of the Democratic political establishment have been controlled by their donors. In the Republicans, this is large dollar donors traditionally, and now also small dollar donors who, for five bucks a month, can get Marjorie Taylor Greene to disgrace all of American political institutions. But I also think that some of the populists who have come up on the left, notably the squad are the most notable example of this, they tend to come from an activist background and they tend to be focused more on messaging within a certain milieu. So for instance, your family policy plans, health plans in places like West Virginia, a lot of that comes down to a belief that people are pro-life. They don't like abortion and they want people to be able to start families. And many of the reason that people don't start families, as David Frum mentioned a few episodes ago, is that people get abortions because they can't support having another child. That's just tragic for everyone. If you're pro-choice, if you're not, it doesn't matter. You think that's an awful position. But my fear is that many progressives who try to run in these states, they are still focused on the top-level issue, which is we want public health care, we want paid family leave because we're pro-choice. They attach it to cultural issues rather than the economic reality that undergirds it. What do you think of that? Yeah, that's why I'm super frustrated. So I'm co-founder of Just Democrats, and this is not at all what I intended. I think they're going in the wrong direction, and they won't listen to anyone. What do I mean by that? The cultural wars are what divide us. Economic issues are what unite us. So I got no problem fighting on those social issues. You just turn into Young Turks any day, and I rip the right wing's face off on social issues and culture war issues. And they pretty much loathe me for it. And so when they come for LGBTQ community, when they come for black folks, Muslims, Jews, etc., we defend and we counterattack. But... 
if you want to win elections and you want to get bills passed, you have to focus on economic issues. It doesn't mean either or. We can do both. And we can say to the right wing, hey, brothers and sisters, we don't agree with you on this stuff and you don't agree with us. You're pro-life, we're pro-choice. We got a massive disagreement there. But does that mean we have to disagree on corruption? Don't you hate corruption? I hate corruption. Don't you think that these guys work for their donors? I think they work for their donors. Why can't we work on that agreement first? And then once we get our democracy back, then we could have these interesting cultural wars, etc. But right now we live under corporate rule where we're all getting crushed. So I need you to focus. So here's a great example. On abortion, 70% of the country agrees with us. And it's overwhelming. So we just won in Ohio with about 58, 59% of the vote. We crushed there, crushed in Kansas and Kentucky and Montana. Wherever we go, the American people, even in the reddest states, agree with us on abortion. Let's be clear. They oppose bans on abortion. The issue polling is terrible, so it is hard to tell on this stuff. But it does seem that the broad position is a European position, which is limits to the end of a pregnancy pretty much open access at the beginning. Yeah. It's not like the California position, for instance. I just think it's good to clarify on that. So, Ross, no problem, and that's exactly right. And I think the Democratic position is the Roe position, and the Republicans have lied about it so often people get confused. And to be fair, there are some places where they've gone to extremes. But the Roe position is that it's legal till viability, till the third trimester. And that is what 70% of Americans agree with. It's not my position. I don't think it's the Democratic Party position that it should be abortion all the way to birth. I think, no, once the, the fetus is viable and what I call an independent human being, then it definitely has rights. But on the core ruling of Roe, 70% of Americans agree. She goes on CNN, AOC, and as she's talking about this issue where we're enormously popular, she says, now we have to give rights to all birthing people. And I'm like, wait, what? What's a birthing person? And that's apparently a new term where in order to be more inclusive to trans men who still have uteruses, instead of calling women women or mothers mothers, we have to call everyone birthing people or people with uteruses. Well, how does that poll? I haven't done the poll, to be fair, but my educated guess is that it's going to poll at 2%. 2% of Americans want to call women people with uteruses. I think you're probably being a bit generous there. <laughs> yeah, and I'm being generous. So what did AOC do in that moment? She took an issue where we have 70% popularity and turned it into an issue where we have 2% popularity. Because if you watch that interview, the only thing you could think is, what the hell is a birthing person? Why are you going and, and labeling things in a way that repels the great majority of voters when you had it? You had it. So when you transition to economic issues, the phenomenon I just described in that little microcosm right there, it, on a macro level, is all that they ever do. All they do, unfortunately, the Just Democrat legislators now, is culture war, culture war, culture war. Focus. We sent you to pass bills. Which bill are you going to pass by talking about culture war issues? Even if you were arguing for a culture war bill, you have a 0% chance of passing it. 0% because the country is completely divided on it. But if you talk about economic issues, you have an excellent chance of passing those bills because the country is overwhelmingly on your side. My God, we fought so hard for those Justice Democrats. Our audience gave millions of dollars to those Justice Democrats. We poured our heart, soul, and hope into those Justice Democrats to go fight the establishment. 
And if you take an example like paid family leave and say, no, I can't fight on something that 84% of Americans agree with, you're saying, I threw your hope in the trash can. I'm not going to do it because it makes me uncomfortable. And now there's one more thing, Ross, here that's super important. Why? Why don't they fight on things that are popular and things that are their positions? So AOC and the rest of them are not lying. The corporate Democrats lie all the time, but the Just Democrats are not lying. And they're not corrupt. They don't take corporate PAC money. So why are the these honest, decent people not doing the thing that is obvious? There's a very good answer. Because in order to win on those economic issues, you have to point out that people in Congress are not voting for them because they're corrupt. And a lot of those people are Democrats. And in Washington, it's considered a capital offense to criticize a fellow Democrat. Those are your beloved, cherished colleagues. And being impolite to them will get your head taken off. And they're not wrong about that. Democratic leadership, of course, will do it. They'll say they're the monsters and the worst and radicals and helping Trump and all that stuff. But that's not the main problem. The main problem is mainstream media, which will then bury them. They will take people who are progressive and make them look like they're Trump fans. AOC and the rest, they don't want to be uncomfortable. If they fight for their voters on things they could win on, they'll be made super uncomfortable. If they fight on culture war issues, everybody's happy. The establishment doesn't mind that at all because they know you're not going to pass any of those laws. And they don't even care if you pass those laws. As long as it doesn't hurt their economic interests, they're like, okay, great. Fox News and the Justice Democrats have the culture war fights. Distract yourselves into oblivion while I rob you blind and take out a couple of trillion dollars for the rich in tax cuts. And it's interesting, too, that these politicians introduce lots of bills, write lots or have them written for them, I should say, and put them, bring them. And then that's a great record to go on. You go, I introduced X hundred number of bills on XYZ issue that you care about. None of which notes that you wrote these bills knowing that there was no chance they'd ever come up for a vote, let alone campaign for them actually to win a vote. What percentage is them being scared? And what percentage is them uh, just not knowing? Uh, Ignorance sounds like a harsh word, but... They just might not know how to pass these bills. Like Bernie Sanders is a terrific guy, morally decent in every way, has all the right policies, and focuses on economic issues. So win, win, win. But you know, like, and he reintroduced minimum wage bill. Now, now it's seventeen dollars minimum wage that he introduced. Great, all good so far. But I think there's some chance he has no idea how to pass that bill. And and I know exactly how you would pass that bill. But the path to passing it is by shaming your colleagues. And it's not done for emotional release. It's done strategically. So if Bernie Sanders says, hey, wait a minute, last time we voted on minimum wage, eight Democrats voted against it. That's a fact. And that was during the Biden years. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. Two of the Democrats were from Delaware. Did those Delaware senators ignore the White House and say, I don't care about Joe Biden. He's weak. And I'm going to ignore him and vote against his priority. Or did they check with the White House and the White House told them to throw $15 minimum wage under the bus? So now if Bernie Sanders does that publicly, you know what's going to happen, Ross, a conflagration. Now we got a media scandal, Bernie versus Biden, Bernie versus Coons and Carper. And what does that do? That draws attention to the fact that the Democrats are liars 
and that they never intended to pass $15 minimum wage. That makes their voters angry. Then you go to Delaware and you talk about how, why did Coons and Carper vote no? Why did they vote no? Why did they vote no? And then you do a poll in Delaware and then you find out, hey, probably around 70 to 80% of the people in Delaware, a blue state, want $15 minimum wage. So why did their senators betray them? When you use the word betray, you're putting a spotlight on issues where the American people are with us. Democratic voters and all voters are with us. That you play hardball, you do political battle, you drive down poll numbers until you get results. You build leverage and you use that power. Either Bernie Sanders is too uncomfortable to do that and would never do that to his cherished colleagues like Coons, Carper, and Biden because he cares more about them than his voters. And I love him, but that's what he's saying through his actions or, and or, by the way, he just never even knew that that's how you're supposed to do politics. He thinks you introduce the bill, you ask nicely, and when your corrupt colleagues say no, you just sulk back home. Cinema and Mansion are quite unique in the Senate in that they actually have a large record of bills that pass, which is odd. And a lot of it is because, dislike the policies or not, they are reaching across the aisle, they're collaborating where issues do align, and they're getting stuff passed. And I often think during 2020, you had a very unstable presidency, and yet many of the most vocal people on the American left were talking about defund the police, or they were using a bunch of very useless and sort of meaningless slogans, rather than focusing on the core issues. How would you suggest that you get to a healthier political culture? How do you get that the candidates that people should be pushing for and looking for, be they conservative or Democrat, mind you, free market or not, that how can we get it to a point where the candidates that they hear saying the right things and they support go into office and actually pass bills, get stuff done, push the agenda they're looking for, and don't, as you feel with the Justice Democrats, go there and then spend their time doing Vanity Fair covers and getting articles written about how they use Instagram Live in an interesting way. There's two different things there. Now, let me address Mansion and Cinema first. So there's a reason why they get bills passed. There's two reasons. Number one is they're corporatists, and the entire Republican Party is corporatist. The great majority of the Democratic Party is also corporatist. They just play a game. It's theater. So all Mansion and Cinema have to do is basically get to the right-wing position, and they're going to pass bills. Because in reality, the overwhelming majority of the senators agree with the donors. Why? Because they're paid to agree with the donors. So when you're trying to get a pipeline passed with all of the progressive pushback, democratic pushback, scientific pushback in the world, it doesn't matter. Passing a pipeline is super easy. So Manchin got a corrupt pipeline in West Virginia that he's going to personally profit off of. And he slapped Biden across the face 12 different times. He destroyed 85% of Biden's agenda and Biden did him a favor anyway and gave him the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Meanwhile, how many favors did he do for progressives? None. Zero. Zero. Gave them nothing. Didn't give them minimum wage and then paid family. You name it. Didn't give them anything. So there's two reasons why. One is the one I just explained because Biden and Manchin agree. They want to deliver for their donors. So it's all theater. And then at the end, the things that they agree on are 100% of the time in favor of corporations. So it's a mirage. They're not more practical. They're just more corrupt. The second reason is because they're willing to play hardball. They go, okay, if, if I don't get my 
demands, I'm not going to let you pass this bill. Now, I don't know if they're bluffing or not, and I don't care. Our side, on the other hand, could have easily, easily, easily said, just pick one of them. In fact, at one point, even Machen said, hey, pick one of your priorities. And he listed uh, several of them, including paid family leave. So at any point, progressives could have said, paid family leave or bust. We're not passing the goddamn bill. Okay? That's called hardball. That's elementary politics. I'm not talking about sophisticated politics. Elementary. It's the very first thing you learn on the very first day of politics. And the progressives were like, I don't know what to do. And they literally went with a strategy called trust Biden. I'm sorry, but that's just literally the dumbest political strategy in history. That means I'm giving away all my leverage, all my power. I'm not asking for a single concession. And I'm just letting him give everything to Manchin and getting nothing in return. And there are never any consequences. Pramila Jayapal came up with that strategy. She's the head of the Progressive Caucus. She's the one that blew the negotiations, got nothing, was just absolutely humiliated in those negotiations. But they'll never replace her. Why? That would be unkind. She's one of the elites. She's one of their colleagues. They cherish her. Their voters, less so. But we can't get rid of Jayapal because that would be mean. Well, if you have Jayapal as a leader, I'm sorry, but you're not going to get anything done. I mean, the, she's in the next time around, she's never going to learn a lesson. She never learned a lesson through all of these different rounds. Now we've been through half a dozen rounds with her. And then the very next time, she'll give away all of her power and all of her leverage and beseech the corporate Democrats. It's a dumb strategy. It has a 0% chance of success. That's why Manchin and Cinema get stuff done and progressives don't get anything done. When we look to the 2024 to 2028 period, I view it as sort of a wash. If Biden wins, I'll be happy because of who the alternative would be. But it's not like the country's going to move forward very much. It's just sort of status quo remains. And if Trump wins, again, he's only in for one term, hopefully. And then the Republican Party will move on to something. From that 28 point onwards... What would you like to see in terms of a presidential candidate, in terms of a direction that the presidency should take in a left-wing direction? And what should be done in legislatures, among activists, to get to a point where that can be effective? If it's not a revolution, at a minimum, it has to be a rebellion. There has to be a rebellion within the Democratic Party. If there isn't, we're just going to go on this merry-go-round forever and ever and ever. You think that in 2028 it's going to be any different? No, the Republicans are going to find a different monster, and then the Democrats are going to say, no, 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 not this time, not this time. This is the most important election of all time, and this time we're going to do exactly what our corporate donors want, but next time, or maybe the time after that, or the time after that, we'll finally get to your... No, they're never going to do it. It's all theater, okay? So why would I vote for Biden over Trump easily? Because I'm not at all convinced that we're going to have another election if it's Trump. And I'm not hyperbolic. Like, the mainstream media is hyperbolic about everything related to Trump. Oh, every new potential indictment for years and years. They're going to get him. They're going to get him. The walls are closing in. Walls are closing in. I'm like, guys, you're being ridiculous. The walls are not closing in. Merrick Garland's the weakest man in America. It's going to take him two and a half years before he puts his shoes on. And let's say he wins the presidency. He could pardon himself on all the federal charges. He's going to go to prison in New York or Georgia on the state charges. 
No, he's not. They're going to delay that. And then after the presidency, they're going to say, oh, home confinement at Mar-a-Lago. And that's the best case scenario. The reason I'm against Trump is not because of any of that stuff. Although the crimes he committed are clear and horrible. And, and one of them is the core reason. And that's the coup. And it was a literal coup attempt. People understandably get misdirected about January 6th. So the riots were terrible. They broke the law. They should suffer the consequences, etc. But that was not the heart of the coup. The heart of the coup was the fake elector scheme. Why did he want Pence to do this weird thing where he would not certify the votes, which is just ceremonial? What difference does it make, people think? Well, the plan that they had, which Peter Navarro wrote a whole book about, right? I mean, he, writes, he wrote a book about their attempted coup. It's insane he's not in prison. And the plan was... Pence denies the certification. They bring it back to the state legislatures, which are Republicans in a lot of these states. Even though the states voted for Biden, their legislatures are Republicans. And the legislatures certify the literally the quote, and it's in the emails. They call them, quote, fake electors. They certify the fake electors instead of the real electors. They pretend that Trump wins. Well, okay, then you've got a huge controversy. And what happens next? It goes to the courts, and the courts say there is a method to resolve this. And it's true. In the Constitution, the way you resolve it is you go to the House, and they vote not based on the number of representatives, because at the time the Democrats had more representatives, but they vote based on the number of states, and the Republicans had more states. So they could have actually done the coup if Pence went along with it. And by the way, when I tell MAGA crowds that, they get even more angry at Pence, not Trump. That loud, oppressive minority of right-wingers has been ruling this country for so long. They have entitlement complex. The reason they busted into the House is because they thought, you didn't win the election because you're not real Americans. We white right-wingers are the only real Americans, and that's our house. We're not breaking into it. We own that house by the very act of who we are, by the very fact of who we are. So... I would never, ever, ever vote for Trump because he is an actual fascist. Like, they throw the word fascist around nonstop. Like, now people call me fascist because I don't want to call women birthing people or people with uteruses. I mean, Mussolini was famous for his <laughs> lack of... Yeah, exactly. But put me aside. That's such an extreme and crazy case. Like, they call DeSantis a fascist. And I hate DeSantis, and I hate the laws that he passed regarding LGBTQ rights, the banning black AP black history, et cetera, et cetera. So I got 0% love for Ron DeSantis. But he's not a fascist. He never attempted a coup. He never tried to overthrow democracy. So when you use the word fascist for everyone and then you use it for Trump, no one believes you. They just think you're being hyperbolic as usual. But the guy's an actual fascist. So uh, no way, under no circumstances ever, right? So sometimes MAGA gets excited because they hear me talking about corrupt politicians and they're like, oh, that must mean he likes Trump. <laughs> I've got bad news for your brothers and sisters. No, it doesn't mean that at all. And second of all, Trump is the most corrupt. I mean, I can get into Sheldon Adelson on how he gave him $100 million twice and how Trump did everything for him and kissed his ass on the left, the right, the center. Trump loves corrupt donors. He's just so stupid, he can't get that many. When he was running, his argument against Hillary Clinton is, I can't be bought, I was buying you. And he's not wrong to a degree, but simply admitting that you are doing a crime and saying that others are also uh, indulging in your corruption doesn't make you the truth teller who is saying what others won't say. 
So, Ross, I'm really glad you brought up that example because it connects to what you started with. It was, I think, the second Republican debate. It might have been the first one, but one of the first two in back in 2015. And I remember being on vacation and watching it to the great annoyance of my family. And when he said, I gave all of you money on this stage and you all took it and you all did exactly what I told you to do. I said, that's it. He's going to win. Because every other politician is so wedded to their corporate donors, they're not allowed to mention corruption, right? And the first person to mention corruption wins. So even though you're right, he's ironically admitting that he's part of the corruption, it was good enough because it broke the spell. So the number one most underrated part of MAGA is that they hate corruption and they hate the establishment. So there's bad parts of MAGA, and I fight against that all the time. But the establishment never gives MAGA credit for the one thing they are right about, which is they despise corruption. Now, they picked the worst candidate for despising corruption. It is a great, great irony. And they don't realize it, and they're blinded to it, but they do genuinely hate corruption. But the establishment doesn't want to see that because they're the ones who are corrupt. So that's why when I saw the debate, I said, he's going to win. When they saw the debate, they're like, oh, 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 I do declare. He says, no chance. He's a reality show host. They will pick the normal fake politician like we always tell them to. And the establishment media is used to shoving down these fake, fake, phony politicians down our throats. So that's why they never saw Trump coming. By the way, one last example to, to prove that point. How about the Democratic side? Well, it's interesting that not Bernie Sanders, but Elizabeth Warren in 2020 was one of the few Democratic candidates in that primary to reach number one, to be the leader of all of them in the polling. Bernie did too at a later point. But why did Elizabeth Warren reach number one, even with Bernie in the race, taking most of the progressive votes away from her? Because she was talking nonstop about corruption in the beginning of her campaign. She talked about the wealth tax, which is very popular. Then she talked about legalized bribes. She's the first American politician that I heard talking about legalized bribes. And that's why I even considered endorsing her instead of Bernie, because she was talking about the central issue. And you want to know what happened next? Once she got to number one, mainstream media got into her head and said, now a credible candidate, of course, wouldn't talk about those radical positions. And now that she's at number one, she should make the turn to being credible. And she did. She bought into that. She's a really good person and a really smart person, but she's a sucker for mainstream media. Whatever they say, she's like, oh, catfished right into it. And so she stopped talking about the wealth tax and corruption, and she nosedived. She went from number one to totally irrelevant. And I bet you to this day, she has no idea what happened. With Trump, the moment where I thought that I didn't just think I put bets in anywhere that would take bets that Trump would win, and it was when the November surprise came, and it was the pussy tape, and I had just thought, this guy is so obviously corrupt, what's coming in November has to be horrific. This is going to be... And it was just him being vulgar. I went, oh, who is the voter who liked him up until now, but his being vulgar was going to be too much. Ross, now we get to the fundamental human psychology problem that drives so much of these political problems. 
which is the inability to escape your own perspective. So the Democrats in Washington think that everybody thinks like they do. That's why they keep doubling down on the wrong strategy with Trump over and over again. They just keep saying, he's a bad guy. He's a bad guy. He's racist. He's sexist. He's bigoted. Over and over. Because they think, how could they not vote against him? Well, they don't think like you do. They don't agree with your positions. You have to think like they do. So why are the Republicans you can win over, which is about 25% of the Republican Party, and independents, the ones that do, why are they going towards Trump? Not because they're racist, bigoted, et cetera. That's the other end of the Republican Party. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. It does exist. But that's hardcore MAGA. 37% of the Republican Party says there is no piece of evidence you could give me about Donald Trump that would get me to change my mind. It's a cult of personality thing. Yeah. And so among the movable Republicans and the movable independents, they care about their own lives. They care about economic issues. Can I pay the rent? I'm so mad at my boss and my manager, and I never get the raise. I used to have the local coffee shop. Walmart ran it out of business. Now I'm working for $9.75 as a manager at Walmart. My life sucks. Nobody respects me. I've lost economic dignity. These are things that they care about that you need to approach them on and win them over. And it's actually super easy to do that because we have positions that are provably popular. So, for example, $15 minimum wage. I keep going back to it because it's a slam dunk. It passed with overwhelming margins when it was uh, ballot initiatives in Florida, Arkansas, Missouri. Very red states, and it won in landslides. So why wouldn't the Democrats try to win over people in Arkansas, Missouri, Florida, etc., with $15 minimum wage? That's because they're corrupt, and their corporate donors told them, under no circumstances are you allowed to pass that bill. Go lie, and the mainstream media, which we also own, will help you lie and pretend you're on people's side, but don't run on it. And most importantly, if you get an office, don't you dare do it. Look, one last perfect example there. Missouri. The ballot initiative for minimum wage is on at the same time that Claire McCaskill is having her election. And so Claire McCaskill is an incumbent. She has tons of power as an incumbent. She has tons of money. She has almost all the mainstream media on her side. But it is Missouri. It is a red state. So it's going to be a competitive election, right? Now, good news for her, $15 minimum wage is on the ballot, and it won by 24 points. She never once ran on it, and she lost by six points because she's a corporatist, and she doesn't like her own voters' positions. So she could have won that race, but she gave it away because she had to do what the corporate donors told her to do. So the the Democratic Party has lost the means and the ends. Like they, money started as a means to get to the end of winning and not winning for the politicians. I don't give a damn about the politicians. Winning in terms of passing bills. Then they forgot the ends completely, and they got obsessed with the means. So money, 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 money. They're obsessed with money. So when people see that, and they see Trump being a clown, crazy guy, but at least real, like he has the trappings of authenticity. Even though he's a con man, he sounds like a real person. So they say real person versus fake corporatist robot. I'm going to go with the real person. 
And the Democratic Party is paid not to understand that simple concept. You view lots of the, the solutions to many of the problems are that there are these broad common positions that people support. And I, I think you're correct on in many of these economic issues. But there are issues where, as an individual voter, your incentive is to go against them, even though when you apply them socially wide, they end up having net positive to everyone. So the example that I think here is carbon taxes. Carbon taxes, when you bring them to most ballot initiatives, have done quite poorly. They've even been revoked in several countries. And a lot of this is from ballot initiatives to revoke it. And because of it, it's because people's petrol prices go up, it's because people's gas bills go up, and they vote against it. But we can see quite clearly in places where they have been installed that carbon capture tech goes up, electric car development, battery development goes up, a lot of green energy conversion on grids increases when there's carbon taxes. What do you think about those issues where the record seems to be that individual voters will vote in a way that is against their interest in this aspect? Where do you think that fits in? So, Ross, I would love to get to an America where we're having a conversation about the carbon tax. But we're too far away, really, for that to be relevant. Yeah, I mean, we're not doing the easiest things in the world. I'll give you another example, gun control. Mainstream media tells you we're endlessly divided on that. There's no way we can get gun control passed. Joe Biden got some nonsense, totally bullshit thing passed that has nothing to do with anything and doesn't address a single thing, and they called it historic. It's just a joke. It's a sick joke. He didn't get the bare minimum passed there, and they say, well, it's okay, because what could he do? The country's divided on it. Universal background checks poll at 97%. The lowest poll I've ever seen, I've seen a a half a dozen polls, is 88%. The highest is 97%. Call it 90. Okay, what difference does it make? When they ask Republicans, over 80% of Republicans say they want universal background checks on guns. Over 80% of gun owners, over 70% of NRA members. You got over 70% of NRA members on a piece of legislation on gun control, and you can't get it passed? You got 97%, and you can't get it passed? So let's do those first. And unfortunately, the reason that nothing ever passes is the issue that I keep going back to, which is they're literally paid to not pass these, right? You have to end private financing of elections. If you have private financing of elections, they will forever work for private interests. They will never, ever, ever work for the public interest. That's why I told every Justice Democratic candidate the first issue has to be in money and politics. Otherwise, you won't get anything else passed. And they didn't understand that concept. And they didn't believe me. And so here we are. So this is getting to the carbon tax in that, Ross, you first get money out of politics, which I know is exceedingly difficult. But you could partly do it by passing some of these bills through public pressure, right? Building up momentum, power, leverage. There is a real political strategy here to be able to execute that. And once you have passed the stuff that A, cleans up politics, and B, is really easy because the overwhelming majority of the American people agree with you, then you can gain enough credibility that you can go to the American people and go, hey, look, a carbon tax is going to increase your gas price a little bit. And be honest with them. For God's sake, just for once in your lives, politicians, be honest. And and they'll respect you more and say, hey, you know what? And it could your price of gas could go up by 10 cents, 20 cents, whatever the real number is. But in return, guys, we're going to create all these jobs in, in renewable energies. 
and we're going to clean up the environment. And by the way, so your house won't fall into the water like just happened in Juneau, Alaska, when the river floods by three feet more than it has ever flooded before. And you and Louisiana won't sink and you'll be able to get insurance in Florida. We'll save trillions of dollars by doing this. But yes, you'll have to pay 15 cents more per gallon on gas. But you can't do that today because you don't have enough credibility built up with the American people to execute it. For the moment being, yes, getting a carbon tax passed in today's political climate, impossible. So let's focus on the possible. Let's focus on fixing the system first, and then we'll get to all those things. And at some point, we'll get to a point where the American people don't agree. And we're not past 50% or we're not past 55%, whatever the magic number is. And they'll go, hey, Cenk, I, I hear what you're saying about fill in the blank, carbon tax, whatever it might be. But we don't agree and we don't want it. And then the Democrats will flip out and go, how dare you? And I'll say, no, that's democracy. If the Republicans win, they win, right? As long as we actually have a democracy. But right now, we don't have that at all. One of the problems that many people see in the mainstream press that you talk about is that They'll often cover something and they'll have a slant that's very obvious in the story. Wherever you come from the political aisle, whatever your topic of expertise, everyone has seen this, particularly if it's something you know well. And it unnerves you. You read the story on a topic you go well and you go, hang on, this is completely wrong or this has such a strong bias in it. And you go, what about the things I'm reading that I don't know? And you've, with the Young Turks, tried to counter that in the over 20 years you've been on the air and 18 that you've been on YouTube by sort of branding at the forefront that you are a progressive network. I'm curious, what have you learned from that? And how have you worked to avoid the negatives? The worry that I would have is that by making the slant that you have and the angle that you come from so front of mind, that you can end up excusing yourself for leaning into it more than would be appropriate or you can end up in a room where everyone ends up saying the same bloody thing to each other and repeating the same problem that occurs in other media organizations. So there's two great topics in that question. So let me address them one by one. First on mainstream media and their lies through omission. I've got two great examples. My recollection is that it was Jake Tapper, but I'm not positive, but it was a pundit on CNN, an anchor that talked about Medicare for all. And the Mercatus Center at George Mason had done a study on Medicare for All, and they said that it costs $32 trillion. And Jake Tapper said that on TV. Well, Medicare for All, it costs $32 trillion. But he left out two critical facts. One, the study was funded by the Koch brothers. That might be a little bit relevant. They're dead set against Medicare for All. They funded a study to show you how bad Medicare for All was. But that's not even close to the most relevant. The second fact is, even in that study, the professors couldn't help themselves they tried and tried and tried to make it look terrible, but they had to confess it saves $34 trillion. So it was a net positive of $2 trillion that we would save if we did Medicare for all. But if you watch CNN, you thought it cost $32 trillion because they left out the part about how it saves $34 trillion. Now, that is deeply deceptive. That is propaganda 101. And who's CNN paid by? Politicians are huge advertisers on CNN. Drug companies are the biggest advertisers on CNN. And they would lose trillions of dollars under Medicare for all and insurance companies. So it's corruption defined. They lie all the time through omission. And then they go, what, 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 what? The study said 32 trillion, right? I just left out all the other relevant facts. New York Times did it to me. I've been talking about this forever, for decades. But when I ran for Congress, 
uh, I'll give you one of the mountain of lies they said had about me. They said that I was anti-Muslim based on a joke that I made. They left out the part that I am Muslim, and I was joking about my own people. I'm atheist now, but my whole family's Muslim. I grew up Muslim. They didn't say anything. They just said, this guy's bigoted against Muslims. Well, if that's all you saw, <laughs> of course you vote against me, right? Can you believe they didn't even clarify that I grew up Muslim? That's because they lie, lie, lie all the time. And they make it appear that their propaganda is objective. The New York Times and CNN are objective. Corporate rule is excellent. The status quo is wonderful. All of these outsiders are radicals and not credible, and you should never elect them. What, what, what? We're objective. <laughs> Get out of here, man. And most of the anchors have no idea. They got picked because they were already predisposed to that propaganda. So that's that's the issues here. Yes. Now the second part. So why did we call it homo progressives? Because we are progressive and we're not liars. So we, we give you the news first, and I'm going to prove to you in a second that we never, ever play around with the facts. And we're infinitely more objective than mainstream media. Then we give you the context, we say, okay, here's Medicare for all, here's a study. Then the context is, th it's not just 32 trillion spending, you save 34. Then we give you analysis. Well, 70% of Americans are in favor of Medicare for all. In, in fact, every other developed nation has the equivalent of Medicare for all, and it costs half as much, et cetera, et cetera. Then we give you our perspective. We are in favor of Medicare for all. So that's how you do honest reporting. Hiding your perspective is by definition dishonest. So if CNN and New York Times are pretending that they don't have a pro-corporate, pro-status quo, pro-insider, pro-establishment perspective, they're a giant joke. No one believes that. Everyone knows they're deeply biased in favor of corporate rule and the establishment. And they prove it every single day, 200 times a day. And then they go, no, we are privileging our own biased position by calling it objective. It's doubly dishonest. You see how brilliant that propaganda is? When you just say my position is the objective one, it's amazing propaganda because it, it, it warps reality. So Fox News is a blunt instrument. They do propaganda in a ham-handed way. They're so obvious and brazen with their propaganda. The New York Times and CNN are so much more sophisticated. They'll take the same bias Fox News has and make it appear through a, a magic trick that they're the, that's the objective position and that no one is allowed to argue with it. And if you argue with it, you are by definition a radical and should not be elected and, and should not be anywhere near power. So we're honest. Now, how can I prove that it doesn't affect our coverage and that we don't just go with ideology and orthodoxy? Well, we wrote our core values. It's on our website. You can check it out, tyt.com. And number one is truth. And I say, in a battle between truth and our ideology, truth wins every time. Facts matter. So how do we prove it? We prove it through our actions. So there's a great number of things that I disagree with, the so-called left-wing ideology. We talked too much probably about that one example of the, the people with uterus, or a new term is uterus havers. So... Left-wing Twitter is absolutely convinced that the majority of Americans think it's totally okay to call women uterus havers. Right, a term that would seem like deeply sexist about four minutes ago is now a shibboleth of being a progressive... 100%. I actually think the radical left 
has gone around the bend and has become libertarians and right wing in some of their actions. For example, on crime and homelessness, they say that we should do next to nothing. We should not uh, involuntarily bring in homeless folks who can't make decisions for themselves because of mental health issues or addiction issues. They think it's freedom to just let them roam around and do whatever they want. That sounds like Republicans. That's like libertarian anarchists. No, you're supposed to help those people. And just letting them roam the streets with no help at all is not helping them. They're like, no, we can't, we can't institutionalize them. That would take away their freedom. That's not a left-wing position. I think that's a right-wing position. Like the defund the police people, I would hear some positions that they would say, no, we need to have a set-up, communal set-up version of a private security... You just endorse private security over police. Like, it's like that is literally an anarcho capitalist position. It's just that you've brandished it through the socialist worldview somehow that is completely antithetical to this very policy. And again, crime harms poor people the most. Working class people suffer from crime the most. They suffer from the problems with their neighbors having addiction issues. It's working class people trying to set up a family struggles the most. And it's growing up in areas with crime with drug issues that are around, that stops people from being able to rise up economically to give their children better lives. That's exactly right, Ross. Let's take defund the police as another example. So I'm sickened by police abuse of African-Americans in this country, and I want massive reform of our criminal justice system and our policing. But I said defund the police is a terrible slogan. It makes it sound like you're going to take away all cops. You're going to lose all momentum, all popularity, and you're not going to be able to get reform bills passed. You're not going to be able to get anything passed if you say defund the police. And left-wing orthodoxy attacked us like crazy and said, how dare you? You don't speak for people. We speak for the African-American community. I was like, no, you don't. Who elected you? Well, I'm black and you're not. Uh, Okay, but who elected you? No one elected you. You made up this position. You made up this slogan. And you don't speak for African-Americans at all. And they thought that was outrageous. Why? Because identity politics. And it's supposed to trump everything else. And guess what? They did a poll in Minnesota where Ilhan Omar was running her last election. And she had supported a defund the police bill in Minnesota. 78% of African-Americans were against that bill. And she nearly lost her election. So defunding the police didn't work. And then progressives got routed in Portland, Seattle, Now they're getting routed in San Francisco, soon in Washington, et cetera. Being progressive doesn't mean you're a radical. And what I'm worried about is that the left-wing Twitter is convincing people of the same thing Fox News is trying to convince people of, that being a progressive means being super radical and having completely unpopular positions. Why are you helping them? Why are you helping them? That is the exact opposite of what is true. If you listen to this podcast, what have I advocated for? 100% progressive positions that are completely popular, overwhelmingly popular in the country. And does anyone in American media now give you that impression? No. Again, when it comes to economic issues, Fox News, MSNBC, and CNN are united. Progressives are radicals far outside the mainstream even though almost all of our economic policy positions are favored by over two-thirds of the country. We connected through my story about Dave Rubin. One of the interesting things about Dave, and same with Jimmy Dore, 
is both men had been at the Young Turk, started there. You had been friends with both, and both had become less than honest characters over time. One of the problems with being in a position that is divergent from a mainstream is that in some people you find people who are driven by principle, and in others you find people who are just driven by opposition to things or just are radical. So with those incidents in the rearview mirror, how do you move forward and how do you learn from those people that have come through the Young Turks and have disappointed? Yeah, so the reason why the Jake Tappers of the world and the New York Times writer is outraged listening to this podcast and will be outraged when they read my book is because they don't know that they're part of corporate rule and that they're in the marketing business and not the news business. They genuinely, genuinely don't know. And a lot of people on the left and the right get this wrong. They think that those guys in media and politics are evil and they know and they're plotting against us. No, they don't know that at all. And they're not evil. They grew up in a bubble. And when they go to get hired by CNN, CNN is looking for people in that bubble. So if you already think that the status quo is great, and they call it the system, oh, the system is great, it needs to be preserved, etc., you're infinitely more likely to get hired by CNN. If you're a progressive, the management at CNN is going to consider you a radical and not hire you. If you're a right-winger, they're going to consider you a radical, and either they're going to hire you to help the Republican Party because the Republican Party is demanding it, or they're not going to hire you. But progressives are the least likely to get hired because they have no political uh, leverage and power. Their own representatives don't back them. The Democratic Party doesn't back them. And and they're antithetical to corporate rules, so they have no chance of getting hired by mainstream media. That's the world we live in. And what I did was I opened up the spectrum of acceptable thought at TYT. I said... We're going to hire a lot of people, and a lot of them I disagree with. So TYT is home of progressives. So we have from uh, leftists to what I would call mainstream progressive, which is me, Young Turks, etc. And Young Turks is the flagship show. TYT is the network. And we have about we have several dozen hosts and leftists, mainstream progressive, and even moderates. So we have the whole spectrum. So that means by definition, a lot of our hosts disagree with me. That normally doesn't happen because I'm the CEO of the company. Normally, the CEO hires people that thinks just like them. And that's why everyone on cable news is a robot. Everyone on MSNBC agrees. Everyone on Fox News agrees. Everybody at CNN agrees. At Fox News, there's a little bit of difference between the anchors, actually, because of Trump. But at MSNBC and CNN, you couldn't find 2% difference between any of their anchors because they're picked by the same guy for the same purpose. But when you open it up, the aperture, as I did, and you allow for more voices, some of them are going to go rogue. And that's just a fact. So it's a trade-off. More voices, less gatekeepers, has tons of upside. And we've had amazing hosts. John Irola, Rashad Ritchie is now the second most popular host in all of online media. And he's the Young Turks. Nina Turner. And then other guys who left, Hassan Piker who's one of the top streamers on Twitch. So all these amazing folks, Anna Kasperi and me, name it, right? There's tons of them in mainstream media today, actually, in like entertainment shows, media shows, et cetera. And they're slowly sneaking in progressive ideas into the mainstream. So we've hired all these wonderful people. But yes, you got some people who are going to be driven by money. And I think Dave was a right winger and he was hiding it from us. And he was actually more... And I'm being kind to him by saying, I, th- 
I don't think he's lying so much right now. I think that half of his stuff is lies, but half of it, he was always conservative. He just hid it from us. He was lying more to us than he is today, right? Jimmy was never a Republican, but when he just saw money from the MAGA guys coming in through all the views and Patreon and whatever else he does, the perfect example is he was pro-vaccine. He does a pro-vaccine video, gets very little views because it's a normal opinion to have. Then he does one video and he's like, I got a sh- shoulder problem or a back problem. because I think it might be the vaccine. Boom, that blows up. Next thing you know, 20 videos, 40 videos about problems with the vaccine because they're doing well. They're getting more views. They're getting more revenue. They're getting more dollars in. So all of a sudden, uh, I'm vaccine skeptical. I mean, maybe horse pace is the way to go. And so I don't know. I oh, it's my shoulder. Uh, how's the money coming in? Money's coming in good. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The other shoulder. Oh, I got another problem. Get out of here. So yeah, there's always going to be unscrupulous people, and that's part of life. But the alternative is to shrink down and to do what the other guys do, which is hire only people that think like me. And I will not do that. After the break, quick questions with Jen Uger. Quick questions. One. Is the workforce impact in labor by AI overrated because the main jobs it threatens are in the press? Mm, No. Uh, AI is going to threaten a lot of jobs. What do you think of Cornell West's candidacy? I think Cornell West is a wonderful, interesting thinker. I don't think a third-party candidate can win, and I don't think it's productive because running against a Democrat in a primary makes a ton of sense and doesn't hurt the Democratic Party at all. But running as a third-party candidate might. And I don't care about hurting the Democratic Party, but I do care about Trump winning and, and us never having another election. Should we have sent cluster bombs to Ukraine? No. So cluster bombs are internationally reviled, and they should be. And just because our allies use them doesn't make them any more moral. What was the most important thing you learned from your time as an attorney? To not be an attorney. Should Americans travel more? Of course. Is Extinction Rebellion a force for good, or does stunts just make people less sympathetic to the cause of climate change? It's a mixed bag. They have the right idea, which is to create good trouble. Their execution needs a lot of help. They should call me. Should the House of Representatives be expanded? No, I don't think that's the solution. Should John Stewart primary Biden? 100%. 200%. For God's sake, get in there already. He can win. He's more progressive than Biden, but much more important than any of that, he's more authentic. He's a real person and not a greasy politician that's just only going to do what his corporate donors want. Was the calamitous withdrawal from Afghanistan inevitable, or should we blame the Biden administration? Inevitable. Could they have done a slightly better job? Of course, right? But even if they did a brilliant job, mainstream media was going to tear them apart Because how dare you leave a war after only two decades? The defense contractors had more money to make. What belief do you hold that most of your viewers would disagree with? I don't agree with affirmative action. Do you expect China to invade Taiwan? Mm, No, but I'm not sure. Why doesn't RFK Jr. run as a Republican? Because it's more profitable to pretend you're a Democrat while supporting all right-wing positions e.g. Tulsi Gabbard, Jimmy Dore, Glenn Greenwald. As proposed by Andrew Yang, should we pay presidents more, but bar them from earning any income after office? It's not exactly the right solution, but it's a start. What is your favorite Turkish meal? Iskander. That's gyro with tomato sauce and butter on it, pita underneath, and yogurt on the side. Final three questions. One, 
who is the most important person that most listeners won't have heard of? This is not at all quick. <laughs> uh, it would, it's, it's a progressive, but I'm having trouble picking one for you, but name it. Nina Turner, Rashad Ritchie, Anna Kasparian, tons of folks have heard of these because the TYT network is so huge, but we get no press other than our own network. So some of you might not have heard of them, but any one of the three people I just named could easily be president if they just ran. Not easily. Of course, there's the challenges and the number one challenge is mainstream media, but they could and they would change the world. What book would you recommend that most listeners won't have read or perhaps even heard of? Justice is Coming. <laughs> That's my book. The reason you haven't read it is because it's not out yet. It's going to be out September 19th. You could pre-order at tyt.com slash justice. But if you made me pick a book other than my own, which is fair, I don't, a lot of people have heard this book, but Sapiens is a brilliant book, probably the best book I've ever read. Final question. Where can people find you and what are you currently working on? So you type in TYT on any platform that you're on. That's the Young Turks Shorten TYT. That's the network. So we're on almost every platform. Just type it in. You'll get us. We've got 24-hour channels on Pluto, Samsung, Roku, you name it. We have uh, videos up on YouTube, Facebook. We do live on Twitch, almost every platform. And then when you go to TYT.com, though, that's our website, please participate engage in politics. We ask our audience to be activists on all of our behalf. So go to tyt.com slash paid leave to sign that petition and push that forward. If you care about these topics that I talked about, go to tyt.com slash justice. You'll see all of my ideology in one place. Go help Rebellion Pack, which is a great progressive pack that cares about the issues that I talked about here. So rebellionpack.com. Go help Wolfpack. They're trying to get money out of politics and they're nonpartisan. Wolf-pack.com, bringing Republicans and Democrats to fight together to fight against corruption. So thank you for caring about all those things and thank you to the audience for engaging in politics enough to believe in the country and to believe in progress. It's people like you that'll make all the difference. Jack Geiger, thank you for speaking with us. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you really enjoyed it, become a supporter at arguablypod.com. For just £5 a month or £50 a year, you can listen to episodes early, participate in the end-of-year Ask Me Anything episode, and join the comment section. You can follow me on threads, Twitter, and Instagram at atthatrosschap, and the podcast at ArguablyPod on Instagram and Arguably underscore pod on Twitter. Thank you again for listening. See you in a fortnight.